Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It is the mother of all talk shows, watched by more than one million people every week. That's watched, plus those that are merely listening. They're listening, so they didn't see the air quotation marks there. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., in FM Clarity, you must be on 105.5. If you're listening on radio across the United States, you'll be on AM. And if you're listening across the world, thanks to the wonders of the Internet and SputnikNews.com, you are most welcome. But if you are watching as well as listening, as I think it's safe to say the majority now are, then a big welcome to you. If you're watching on Facebook, uh, please share now with all of your contacts. If you're watching on my Facebook, good. If you're watching on RT's multiple Facebook pages, that's great too. If you're watching on my YouTube channel, please subscribe because I'm some kind of medal holder there now because of the increase in our subscribers. And of course, you can, if they're not banned, you can watch on RT's multiple uh, YouTube channels also. You can watch on Instagram, as lucky people right now are. You can watch on Twitch. You can watch on, I think, my Telegram channel now also. Uh, and follow me on Telegram, if you will, because, as I keep saying, that's our last redoubt. If a big algorithm were to turn nasty on us, my Telegram channel might be the last redoubt. Uh, but however you're watching or listening, a big welcome to what is going to be an important show. As Oscar Wilde said on the death scene in Charles Dickens' Little Nell, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. That's how I've felt all week as the big happy family that used to be called NATO began to tear lumps out of each other, withdraw ambassadors from capital cities, threaten retaliation. It has been simply glorious. France, which drowned its empire in blood from Côte d'Ivoire all the way to Algeria and Morocco, which spilt the blood of millions of martyrs rather than let the people of the colonies go free. France, which appears to have turned a Nelson's eye to the boats sailing out of the channel ports 
laden with refugees from war-torn, famine-stricken France on their way to Britain. France, which has double-dealed on everybody all over the world for decades. France, which is up to its neck in blood in Syria and in Lebanon. France, which has become a byword for discrimination and bigotry at home, all in the name of laïcité, all in the name of secularism. France, led by the little Napoleonic dwarf, Macron, is crying into its Chablis. Is that French? Crying into its Chablis because their good friends, the United States, stabbed them in the back. Now, none of what I've said so far invalidates that judgment. They did stab them in the back. In fact, when they were frolicking in the southwest on the coast of England, when Joe Biden was threatening to walk off the pier into the waves, if his wife hadn't caught him, Britain and the United States were double dealing against France and Macron at the G7 summit. Doesn't say much for French intelligence services. That's true, but it's also the case uh, that the decision to go behind France's back, let them learn on the media uh, that their 90 billion euro contract with Australia to build submarines was no more. Rien. It had been stolen from underneath their feet. And uh, France is now in a position that it is going to have to respond. After all, little Macron has a presidential election coming up next year, which was going to be a tricky fixture in any case. But now he has either uh, the opportunity of recovering the dignity of France or to go down in ignominy as the man cuckolded by Joey Biden. Joey is a baby kangaroo, you know. Cuckolded by Joe Biden, imagine. Ah. And Boris Johnson, well, he's cuckolded a fair few in his time. So which of these paths is President Macron going to take? If I were him, and let me advise him, free of charge, not a single franc will be charged for this advice. He should immediately do what his predecessors did, real French patriots and conservatives, withdraw from the political councils of NATO and call a referendum across France on withdrawal from the NATO gang itself. Then 
he should take an aeroplane to Tehran. He's already done so to Baghdad, about which more later, and make peace with Iran, become the European champion of ending American sanctions on Iran. Then take the same aircraft to Beijing and join the Chinese uproar over the AUKUS, the American-UK-Australian pact, about which more later, which is a dagger aimed at the heart of China and from which France has just been so crudely, cruelly excluded. And then take the same aeroplane and go to Moscow, again like his predecessors have done. Even when Russia was communist, and now it is not, unless the Communist Party, the main opposition party in Russia, I remind you, because nobody else will, they keep talking about opposition to President Putin, but they never ever tell you that by a country mile, mile I said, not kilometer, the main opposition in Russia is the Communist Party. France should go kiss, make up with Russia and play a role in breaking up this ludicrous war and sanctions alliance aimed at China and Russia and Iran for no good reason at all. There you go, President Macron. That's my advice. You should take it. And if you do, you will sweep back to power in the presidential elections next year. Mind you, they might try and assassinate you like they did to General Soleimani, but then you'll be remembered as a real Napoleon, not a pretend ersatz one. But he could take a different view. He could shrug and say, I've been cucked. What am I going to do? Nothing. I'm going to tolerate it. That would guarantee his electoral defeat because the French people, and with justification, are absolutely furious. I'll tell you what he might do. In the interim, whilst contemplating my advice, we've got it on a poll now. It's quite likely that that Nelson's eye that doesn't notice a thousand people a week and more setting off from the hellhole of France, fleeing war, pestilence and disease, and ending up in a four-star hotel in England at the cost of 80 pounds a night to the British taxpayer. I'd put money on that. I'd put money on two Nelson's eyes now being deployed in looking out for uh, these refugees. Even though the British have paid them billions of pounds actually to do their duty and stop people leaving their shores for 
hours. We'll see. He may do other things. He might stop the tide of wine. I'm told that French wine sells well here. Maybe he'll stop it, but I hope uh, that he will leave NATO. What's it all about? What did China do to Australia? What did China do to Britain? All they did was build our power stations, give us the wonders of TikTok, provide Huawei phones that we bought. Our capitalists, American capitalists, are investing in the Chinese economy. Imagine, while our governments are stabbing China daily with propaganda, with economic sanctions, with ostracism, and now with gunboats. The British and the French and the Americans have long used the Pacific Ocean and its islands as nuclear dumps. Britain has exploded, by my calculation, 45 nuclear bombs in the Pacific. Some of them in Australia. I'm not making that up. France, in waters on islands right next to New Zealand, such that New Zealand has now banned all nuclear weapons. Nuclear material are coming into their waters and their ports. You'll recall the Greenpeace ship that was blown up by France. Special forces sank the Greenpeace ship that was conducting anti-nuclear agitation in New Zealand and around it. Britain, France, and America are now vying with each other over a UK-US plan to bring nuclear submarines into Australian ports. Why? What did China do to Australia? What did they do? They didn't insult the Australian Prime Minister by not even knowing his name. All they've done is trade with Australia. But now, there's a new military alliance in town, on the high seas, nuclear, nuclear armed alliance on the high seas. Who sees the South China seas? The clue being in the name. Of course, two of them are pedalos, Britain and Australia. The Chinese could sink the entire Navy in an afternoon, in an hour. But these pedalos are the escort ships for American gunboat diplomacy. Why? Doesn't America have more to do fixing its own problems at home? The crumbling infrastructure? the mass poverty, mass evictions, racial turmoil, 
awash with guns? Does America have nothing more to do at home? The, to throw trillions of dollars into war after war after war, $2.3 trillion they spent in Afghanistan, leaving much of the hardware behind in the hands of the obscurantists. I tell you, as I told you last week, or it may have been the week before, if there is a war with China, it will be the last war. It will be the last everything. China is not Iraq. It's not even Iran. China is the world's most populous country with the world's biggest army and its navy, its air force and its nuclear force de frappe will reply all guns blazing to any military threat to its national sovereignty over its territory and water. Is that what you want? Do you want the world to end over a dispute of the Spratly Islands, really? Do you want the world to end over Formosa? Do you even know where it is? Can you spell it? You want your sons and daughters in Davy Jones's locker in the South China Sea? Are you mad? Are you mad, Joe Biden? Are you mad, Boris Johnson? Are you mad, that fella down under, pal, whose name nobody even knows? Least of all, the President of the United States that you just anchored yourself to in the AUKUS. Here's our first poll of the evening. A king says, Starmer is so wooden, <laughs> he washes his hair with pledge. For American viewers and listeners, pledge is a, punish, a, a furniture polish. Uh, Baba Black Sheep says, Mandelson is a bona fide traitor. Neil Curry says, Tony Blair identified as the Middle East peace envoy. Crowhawk says, I don't care what people call themselves, but if I'm buying a dog and it has a pair of testicles hanging out the back, no amount of special pleading or hurt feelings is going to convince me <laughs> it's a B-I-T-C-H. Paul Hammond says, it's not a cold war. Sorry, it's a cold war, not a hot war. Years and years of anti-communism to allow free market what did capitalism Joey, more power. Joey and Biden Chica, boom, boom, think the name says, of Australia's France prime minister was deal for their economic a, survival. The fella down and under. The US double B, them. Cover. C. Rolf Hatterlaff. Greg oh, says McAfee, laugh, Epstein, Anthony Bourdain. When Bourdain, you call the prime minister from of a sovereign country, the fella Greg down under. He was there. Pal. Frank Walker says really the security agencies so of all countries are just as evil down as each other. Copper there is no good or, or bad. Rolf Harris, I wish Alexandros I could do says accent, our troops are I not cannot. heroes. They are only heroes if they stand up against imperialism. 
be that overseas or by their own government. And Piers Morgan, not the Piers Morgan, says Australia is miles away from the South China Sea if this pact is about opposing Chinese aggression in said sea, why aren't any countries in the area joining the pact? That is the smartest thing you've said, Piers Morgan, in a very, very long time. So get voting. What a Joy Biden think the name of Australia's PM was. You can vote on my YouTube, on my Telegram channel, and on my Twitter. The coolest of cats is American correspondent Garland Nixon. Boy, have I got things to talk to him about. Garland, it's so wonderful to have you back on the show. You're looking magnificent, as always. Uh, let's start with, uh, uh, with the, the uh, AUKUS. It's caused such a ruckus. Do the American people even know uh, that they have mortally offended France and they've now got uh, here today, gone tomorrow, Australian Prime Minister, whose name uh, the United States President can't remember, uh, and who may be out of office next year. Do they know or care? Uh, I would argue the answer would be no to both um, both questions. You know, having traveled around the world a bit, I see that the American people, particularly the current crop of Americans that we have, the current electorate that we have, is uh, concerned with the problems that they have here and are less than knowledgeable about international affairs, particularly when our media does everything they can to mislead them. So I would argue that most Americans are, you know, they're caught up in chasing some kind of uh, carrot that they'll never get, and uh, which, which at this time in America, the argument that the Democrats are actually going to reduce taxes on the rich is out there for people to, to chase for a while until it fades as it, as it generally does. So Americans really don't know much about that. And, and it's not a huge, believe it or not, it's not a big story in the mainstream media as it should be. Well, CNN, which uh, used to pride itself on being the breaking news story, uh, did not report for three whole hours that France had withdrawn its ambassador to the United States, something that I think has never happened before, and something that might have been thought uh, newsworthy. Uh, they did, after all, uh, send you the Statue de Liberté. Well, the thing I, I think this is a valuable lesson for France. What France is learning now, they should have long known, and that is that, he, that the United States empire is stringent, stringently hierarchical, both inside and outside of the empire. So the empire's alliances, and I use that word guardedly, alliances of, of, of vassal states and hangers-on, also have a very uh, hierarchical nature. And the countries that are English-speaking go to the front of the line. And France doesn't speak English. They are not at the front of the line. I also suspect, believe it or not, I suspect that Australia may have been looking at their financial uh, balance sheets and might have been looking for a way out of that very expensive um, uh, a deal that they have with France over uh, submarines over the long term and realize that, I mean, the deal with the U.S. is utopian. Um, I don't see how a country of 25 million can have the, 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 the resources necessary to make Maintain, uh, to purchase and maintain a fleet of eight um, nuclear submarines. So in the long run, five or six years, I think this thing fades into history anyway, and it never comes to fruition. I have a feeling that's how the Chinese look at it, uh, too. I'm much more exercised by it than it seems China is. Uh, but if it were to happen, 
it has potentially uh, life extinction uh, as its uh, end, uh, end course. The, why is Biden so maniacal about uh, China? I thought Donald Trump could not be outdone in his anti-China madness. But, so but I Bi think Biden is, uh, is, um, is toe-to-toe -toe with Trump in this madness. Yeah, I think um, you, in my opinion, I've even seen Biden to some extent, I would argue, kind of take it to, to, to a higher level. Um, and I think it's because the Biden really represents the empire and the empire um, wants to be hegemonic. They want to run the world and doggone if those Chinese aren't um, ha taking the position that they have a right to bring their people out of poverty and to advance their economic interest around the world, thereby, thereby giving some of the developing countries an option other than the United States for economic um, uh, improvement. And I think you there's basically what you're looking at is a panicked empire who doesn't know how to deal with China. I mean, and, and let me add this. If you think of it, even if they give the submarines to Australia, how does that change the balance of, of power? What does that really do? It puts some money in the pocket of some U.S. Um, uh, uh, war profiteers in the unlikely event that it comes to fruition. So I think it's I think the U.S. foreign policy is kind of like a drowning man who's just reaching in every direction, trying to grab anything to hold on to to pull himself up. And this is just another example of that. Mind you, um, some Democrats are going out on a limb uh, at the Met Gala tickets, thirty thousand uh, dollars. AOC, the great hope of liberals and progressives in America struck a blow for class struggle uh, by having the train of her dress carried in by a masked servant. She looked rather stunning in it, I must say. Even before I read the, uh, the words on the dress in lipstick, tax the rich, did that send US capitalism scurrying for the bunker? No, I suspect that they laughed and, uh, you know, sat back and had another drink and felt good about it. I mean, think about this. Um, AOC comes into Congress and says, I'm going to fight the system. And then she basically acquiesces to everything that uh, that the the the, you know, hardcore capitalist and the neocons want. Now, uh, it take her career since she's gone into um, Congress, and then compare that to Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard came in and basically stood up against the empire and said, you know, we need to end the Cold War. We need to end these wars. We need to use the money for people. They ran her out of Congress. She's out now. So I would argue that if you come into Congress and you truly try to fight the system, another guy, Will Hurd, a uh, Republican from uh, Texas, he, you know, really tried to fight the system. He's out the door. If AOC was truly trying to fight the system, System, they would have ran her out of office. Once you join the criminal enterprise that is the U.S. Inter that is the U.S. Um, the U.S. Uh, empire. Once you join that criminal enterprise, there's only two options: you go along with their um, worldwide, you know, move for hegemony, or you're going to be out the door. Tulsi Gabbard's out the door. AOC's still there, which means she supports the uh, the, the empire. Well, uh, it got tremendous publicity over here and on social media. Did, uh, how did it play in Peoria? 
Well, you know, I, it, basically, it, it is what AOC has become. And this is not the, to praise or to put down AOC. You know, she has become a pop culture figure. So that the things that AOC does, the, the moves that she makes are would be like, you know, um, when we're looking at what the Kardashians did, when we're looking at, you know, when Michael Jackson was alive or Britney Spears, if she was out there doing something, it falls into that category. I don't think AOC's actions even fall into a political category anymore because she's not um, taking on the powers that be politically. She's drifting along with that. And every now and then she'll do something cute and people will clap and say, wow, did you see that? In California, the recall uh, um, petition uh, failed, uh, comprehensively failed. Is that a big boost for centrist uh, Democrats? They will argue that it's a big boost, but I would argue, really? You won in California and you're arguing that that gives you some kind of a mandate and for your policies? Now, had you lost or come close to losing in California, that would be a major political, you know, that would be a, a, a political earthquake. But the fact that you won in California, I mean, it would be like the Republicans winning in Mississippi. That is, you you are on your home end of the field. There's no way in the world that they should, shouldn't win in a blowout. So I, I would make the argument, certainly they're going to argue with some kind of mandate. You won on your home field in a blowout. You should have won in your home, on your home field in a blowout. So politically, it really means nothing. And Donald Trump, he seems definitely to be running to me. What's your take on that? I think Donald Trump's running. Um, it's interesting. I think that um, the Democratic Party is uh, thinking very, very short term right now, whether it's with the vaccine mandates, they think that's going to help. Um, but I, I would argue this, they're popular with some, but within a year, one to two years, when we get closer to the election, people are going to look at some of the more dramatic um, policy um, changes that have been made under the Biden administration and evaluate whether or not they have been successful. So I think um, there were some polls out recently that showed that Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden. We have a long time. Will it be do uh, uh, Donald Trump or Joe Bi and Joe Biden? Or will it be Donald Trump and Kamala Harris, in which, in which instance, I think it's a cakewalk for Donald Trump if he faces off with Kamala Harris? Yeah, I think the same. And it's inconceivable to me that Joe Biden will be on the ballot in 2024, I think the all joking aside, uh, the uh, the scene, the farce uh, of the U.S. president calling a, a landmark live news event and then forgetting the name uh, of the sovereign prime minister uh, on his right, uh, calling him the fella down under, uh, the idea that he's still going to be compass mentus. Uh, in 2024 to be a remotely credible presidential candidate is fanciful to me. So I expect uh, Kamala Harris to succeed him as president probably rather soon. Yes. And, and I mean, it, going into 2024, um, if you uh, look at uh, what, what uh, Donald Trump had to run had to go against, and again, I'm not a Trump, I'm an independent, I'm, I'm, I'm not for either of them. But because of the pandemic, the Democrats were able to hide Joe Biden in a basement. They were able to cancel um, uh, uh, debates. They were able to hide him as much as possible because it was, it was in the early stages of the pandemic. Going into 2020, that was in 2020, going into 20. 2024, they won't be able to hide him. If he is, in fact, still the, um, the, the, the president, he'll have to be out there and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump, and that will not, he will not fare well. And as for Kamala Harris, 
she's her political skills are very weak. I mean, just as a candidate for any office, we can see how poorly she did in the um, primary. So to put Kamala Harris out there to me is to they might as well look for a white give her a white flag. That should be you know a bumper sticker with a white flag would be an, an a, a, a appropriate uh, thing uh, for um, Kamala Harris to run with. Gallon Nixon, as always, totally fascinating, blistering. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, let me do the poll first. How's the poll doing? How will France retaliate to AUKUS? A, open the refugee flow, 61%. B, stem the tide of wine, 12%. C, leave NATO, 27%. Get voting on that. Some podcast news. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and leave us, if you will, I'm sure you would want to, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy the mother of all talk shows. The podcast had another excellent week with a rise of 10% in one week in total downloads. We're now a permanent fixture in the UK political podcast charts and are now charting in countries, not joking, like Japan, Australia, Ireland, and many others. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, the poll is open uh, on my Twitter feed, on the YouTube and on my Telegram uh, channel. Uh, it's not changing in proportion much. The vast majority of you thinking that France will in fact respond first to the cuckolding by Boris Johnson and Joey Biden by, well, you know, the rest. Now, here's a phone call. Dustin in Idaho. Uh, go ahead. We've got two callers in Idaho, unless Eve is Dustin. Dustin, go ahead. Thank you, George. Excellent. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in the United States, and my big question is, like, so why, why do we want to fight with China? Why does America want to fight with China? It is uh, extraordinary. They couldn't beat the ragged-ass Taliban. And they want to fight the People's Republic of China? Are they insane? Well, because, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I, I think I definitely understand that we created the Taliban. The Americans, politicians definitely created this Taliban mess. But if China's got us outnumbered, Korea, North Korea's outnumbered, Russia would definitely ally with China, right? Absolutely. So would probably Japan. But uh, no, United no, States Japan. Are Russia Jap with Japan is part of the, of the axis. Oh, but anyway, United States is outnumbered way too huge. So my question is, like, why do we want the war? Is there really like an Agenda 21, a depopulation? A depopulation? Is that is that a thing? Do we have too many people here? Well, I have is no Biden idea. A psychopath? Well, that, that is that is sounds Joe Biden like a the, psychopath? Yeah, well, that sounds like the kind of uh, psychopathy that... Uh, would uh, would move people uh, in that direction. I doubt if Joe Biden wants to uh, depopulate the planet because uh, you've no idea what China will do in response. You've no idea which American cities 
will be simply eviscerated in an instant. You've no idea. You think you remember the Twin Towers. Think of that times 10 million. Uh, think of the nuclear destruction that would spread across the world. You would have to be literally insane uh, to contemplate that. And yet, Britain, Australia, and the United States are currently planning on actions which make that a very real possibility, Dustin. So, uh, yeah. what, what can we say? That's my question. Why would, we, why would someone want to do that? Well, I suppose they count on China not fighting back, backing down, not retaliating, as uh, Western navies. Does America owe China trillions of dollars, trillions and trillions of yeah, dollars, correct? That would be a good way of... Uh, that would be a good way of cancelling America's debt to China if war were to break out between them. It's about money and power. The United States simply cannot bear that China is the number two economy in the world and will shortly be the number one. They, right, cannot, they simply can't accept an end to American mm. hegemony in the world. Yeah. Do something well, about it, Dustin. You're in America. You've got to change your leaders. Thanks for the uh, call. Now, the Labour conference is uh, about to uh, roll out uh, before us. It's not a pretty sight. All kinds of trouble is expected. Who better to talk to about it than a former member of Labour's National Executive Committee? a former Labour parliamentary candidate, a distinguished editor of the Labour newspaper Tribune, and a former speechwriter to the former Secretary-General of the United Nations. That's right. I mean the one and only Mark Seddon. Mark, welcome uh, to the show. Uh, well, thank you, George. Good uh, to see you. And you, my friend. Now, um, just set the scene for us. What are the big issues that will be fought out on the floor of the Labour conference? Well, um, looking at it, I mean, it has been billed as this one-off chance for Keir Starmer to finally establish uh, his leadership and to uh, demonstrate to the uh, population at large that he's capable of becoming prime minister. Uh, and so we've had uh, an awful lot. There's an awful lot of press speculation and chat and all the rest of it, but it is pretty key for Starmer to make this make-or-break speech. He's been promising us a 14,000-word treatise on where the Labour Party should stand with him. Um, let's hope we've got enough time to read it by the time the conference opens. Um, but the backdrop to all of this, as you know, George, is the fact that the Labour Party is trailing in the polls, has trailed in the polls almost ever since uh, Keir Starmer was elected, apart from a blip at the beginning, um, he uh, has not made much of an impact. And, but, you know, whilst there would be a lot of sympathy for him normally, I suspect, because COVID has got in the way, because he hasn't been able to go around the country, because people haven't got to see the guy, if you like, that's rather dissipated because he promised that he was going to bring this party together and has done the exact reverse. And so I think in looking ahead at this Labour Party conference, it's going to be about why 
100 odd thousand members of this party have left. Uh, how it is that um, the first time in my lifetime, the Labour Party, when Jeremy Corbyn left office, had 13 million pounds in its account because it was a mass membership party. That's all gone. And also how it is that we are seeing almost daily and not reported anywhere in the national media in this country, really, um, all sorts of people being expelled on the most nebulous and absurd reasons. And including, as you know, just a couple of days ago, they tried to expel a Labour MP in the northeast of England because she had retweeted something else that another Labour MP had tweeted. This is the sort of nonsense, unfortunately, uh, that is going to, uh, to uh, and also this, very briefly, George, this very controversial general secretary that um, Starmer put in, um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure not to actually give him the job full time. A number of the big trade unions and many of the members are saying they don't want to give this man a job full time. They've seen what he's like and they don't like the idea that Blair and Mandelson are advising Starmer as well. They don't like that. Well, uh, Peter Mandelson, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, close friend, uh, was in the Telegraph this week, or it may have been the Times, uh, saying how much he wanted to uh, get into the inner circle around Starmer, how he alone, with his Mephistophelian skills, uh, could turn Starmer into uh, a performing star. But the problem is he's just not box office. Uh, nobody, even Peter Mandelson, could put a shine on what is essentially a, a pillar of wood. <laughs> well, I mean, George, the problem is that Peter Mandelson likes to, to be the story. And this is the terrible mistake Starmer made from the outset. I mean, he, when he made this promise of bringing the party together, he could have reached out and had all sorts of people who were quite genuine around to try and help him. He, he appears to have gone back uh, to these pretty grisly days of New Labour. The public really don't like Tony Blair or Peter Mandelson at all. It's only the media that seem to think that these people are important. Um, and the fact that these uh, British oligarchs, because let's face it, that's what they are, right? Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair are oligarchs, seem to think that they have this God-given right to, uh, to run this political party as a clique. Um, I'm afraid, you know, people just can't stand it. So it's it's even more damaging to Starmer, frankly. And by the way, you know, Mandelson tells us that he was had this fantastic job in in turning Neil Kinnock around. Well, he yes, he did. He trusts Neil Kinnock, the former Labour leader. You remember George, um, who lost uh, lost two elections. Uh, he turned Neil Kinnock from being this passionate uh, Welsh orator with passionate beliefs in democratic socialism into this kind of rather weird sergeant major character. It failed. Dad's <laughs> army. A dad's army a sergeant major. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cor Cor Corporal Mandelson's back. Yes. Do we really want him? No, I don't think we do. Now, the ghost uh, uh, that will hover uh, in the conference hall is the, is the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn, of course, the uh, man who currently sits as an independent MP because Starmer will not allow him to be a Labour MP, whilst at the same time being a member of the Labour Party, uh, a, a kind of purgatory uh, uh, that uh, I've never actually known uh, before. Um, how dangerous to Starmer is the current standoff with Corbyn? Will he uh, seek to extinguish uh, this altogether by 
by booting Corbyn out, or will he bring Corbyn back in? Seems a small price to pay uh, to me uh, to uh, stop uh, the incipient rebellion in the party. I mean, it is a quite extraordinary thing that you decide to boot out the former leader of the of, of the Labour Party effectively from Parliament, which is what Keir Starmer did. Um, a very personal decision, that's what it was. It's very difficult to see under which rules this actually happened properly. But I mean, it is just, a, just to stand back wherever you are in the world and imagine, you know, there was a, 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 a leader of a political party um, and then his replacement comes in and then boots him out because he doesn't like uh, what he has to say. I mean, it is an extraordinary situation. Um, it's caused a lot of upset and aggravation. I mean, I, for what it's worth, I mean, I think I, after all these years that I had in the Labour Party, 40 odd years, you know, I, I always knew that um, back in the 70s and the 80s and what have you, the left and the right of the party, essentially they, they could disagree, but they could all come together because essentially they had a worldview, which was, you know, we have to represent working people. That's what a Labour Party is there for. It says it on the box. I don't see that anymore between the left and the right. I think these two groups are incompatible. And so what you've got happening this week, uh, this uh, the, during the Labour conference, is this event called the World Transformed, at which uh, Jeremy Corbyn will speak. My guess, unless they've got complete complete control over everything, is that Corbyn's going to get a better reception uh, at, at, during that conference than the, the official leader is. I mean, what a farcical situation it is. Um, and so, yeah, of course, it would make absolute sense for. Uh, Keir Starmer to have Jeremy Corbyn back in the back as a Labour MP. I mean, he he essentially said uh, he believed uh, that uh, reports of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party were exaggerated. Well, many of us think that they were. So why should he be ex be kicked out from being a Labour MP for saying that? It's utter utter absurdity. Now, you mentioned the trans word, though you didn't mean it that way. Uh, oh. The world transformed. One thing seems to unite the left and the right of the Labour Party. Uh, the continuing infatuation uh, with a state of being, of mind, that affects uh, a tiny proportion of even 1% of the British population, namely the self-declaration uh, by a man that is now a woman, which we're told by the deputy leader, no less, um, in a tweet just yesterday, Labour is absolutely committed uh, to a gender recognition act which uh, enshrines the right of self-declaration uh, on the part of trans people, making it ipso facto a criminal offence for us or anyone uh, to deny that science-defying, biology-defying uh, metamorphosis. Why has the Labour Party fallen hook, line and sinker uh, for this fringe student politics? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Infatuation. Well, I, I kind of wish I knew the answer to that because it's like, I guess, like a lot of us. I mean, but, but by the way, you know, um, I'm as opposed to discrimination against transgender people as I am to anybody else. The issue, as we all know, you mentioned, is this self-identification. Um, well, look, people can self-identify all they like, but I mean, there are certain biological facts, there are certain racial facts as well. I mean, somebody could say, well, I, as they did in America, I self-identify as African-American when they were Caucasian. Uh, clearly nonsensical stuff. The point is, um, this is uh, a fringe issue. I feel sorry for people if they are discriminated against. I'm opposed to discrimination in every single which way, but you cannot have a situation whereby uh, all the political parties in the establishment uh, are, are prepared to make this a, a, an expellable offence if you say, I am a woman, and, uh, you know, as, as is happening with some of these political parties, and asked, uh, I, I read today, you are, but you were described as being gender critical. Well, I mean, look, apart from anything else, this is anathema to 95% of the population. They don't understand it. Frankly, if you want to hand over power to the right in this country and to the Tory party in perpetuity, carry on with all of this stuff because most people don't get it and they don't like it. So, uh, no, I mean, it really makes no sense whatsoever. There is this issue of this Labour MP. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen what abuse that she says that she's faced. Uh, she's saying, because she is uh, gender critical, uh, that she's being attacked by people for, and, and being accused of being transphobic in the most vitriolic uh, ways. Well, she says that she's not going to go to the conference now, and the Speaker of the British Parliament has said that's unacceptable and that she shouldn't be uh, frightened of going to a party conference. I mean, it's, it's a pretty pass, really. But there again, we live in times where it's very difficult sometimes to have an honest opinion and to express it without offending somebody or without getting people extremely angry. And it'd be great if you could have decent debates, yeah, such as this one, you could say. But um, no, it's a bizarre obsession um, and uh, very corrosive. It, it, it is kind of the weirdest kind of identity politics uh, I've seen uh, because really it gets in the way of class politics, which is what really all, all, all matters and, and motivates people to do things. And um, I think it gets in the way of the left uh, winning again, frankly. Lastly and briefly, Mark, um, it's obvious if you think about it from what Mandelson said in the week uh, that the Blairites recognise that Starmer isn't quite cutting it. Uh, they say they want to help him uh, begin to cut it, but they know that uh, you can't polish uh, certain things in life. Um, what do, what's their plan B? Do they have a prince over the water that they would like to bring back 
Uh, is Tony Blair uh, a potential returnee to power? What are they going to do when it's clear to everybody that Starmer has dismally failed? Well, we, we understand that part of the plan this, week, this coming conference is to cause some major standoff. Um, you know, so this is going to be, if this is the case and it's all about creating Keir Starmer as the, as the Neil Kinnock, they're actually telling us that they know that uh, Starmer cannot win, that frankly, they've worked out that uh, he's a political dud. So there is that. What do they really plan? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. Their prince ac across the water has been David Miliband in New York. Um, but the problem with all of these princes across the water or princes up north or wherever they might be is they're not actually in Parliament. Um, and I know that Starmer's got this new idea of actually having candidates that don't have to be members of the Labour Party, believe it or not. He's got a whole bunch of people who are being fast tracked. Uh, he, he wants to change the rule uh, whereby you don't have to be you can be a member of the Labour Party for under a year and then be a candidate. That well, just maybe it's you and me they've got in mind, uh, Mark. Oh, maybe, it's, maybe it's people like us they want to bring back. <laughs> Marvellous talking to you. Thanks for that vivid description of the many dilemmas being faced by the British Hey, Labour you, do you Party. want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you, hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet your question to George, or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees, hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Now, you have to be a certain age to remember the shining path whose demonic exploits uh, through the 1980s spilled an ocean of blood in Peru. Uh, they were a response, as I'm sure we're about to learn, from brutal dictatorship. They were a response to brutal dictatorship, a response to genocidal, racial policies of mass suppression of the indigenous people of Peru. They were a response to uh, the looting of Peru's very considerable wealth by a tiny oligarchy of exploiters. They called themselves Maoists, although China had by then uh, long abandoned the political positions espoused by the Maoist Sendero Illuminoso shining path. It turned out that their leader was not in the bush, in fatigues, fighting the oligarchy, uh, but was uh, living in a flat above a cafe and working as a university professor in the capital, Lima. But he had many supporters who used to plaster the lampposts and the walls 
as far away as Glasgow in Scotland, because I saw them there, inviting us to make the earth shake until uh, the leader of the Shining Path, Alberto Guzman, was freed from the Peruvian jails. He never was. He died a prisoner in the last week. So let's hear more about that from a leading Latin American figure here in Britain, a man who is himself Peruvian, Isaac Biggio. Isaac, welcome uh, to the show. How was my summary there of the phenomenon of the shining path? Um, well, Abimael Guzman, he was a teacher, but in Ayacucho, and he, when he was in Lima, he was in, uh, in a clandestine way, no? Uh, but effectively, Shining Path killed tens of thousands of people, of people, babies, women, peasants. And in reality, what Shining Path opened was the door for a military dictatorship because uh, it was the, uh, the, the terror made by Shining Path that opens the door for Fujimori in the 90s to become uh, the most neoliberal regime in democratic Latin America. No? So since that time, all Peru has been privatized. The workers don't have too many rights in Peru. And that is because of the Fujimori said we need to repress the terrorists of Shining Path. Now, uh, Abimael Guzman died in jail after 29 years in jail. Uh, he died on the 11th of September. And at this precise moment, there's a discussion in Peru because they wanted to incinerate his body and threw away into the sea. So worse than with Bin Laden, but when they did that, they, they threw the body of Bin Laden in the water, was in a military action where the USA was occupied or entering Pakistan, you know, against the international law. But in this case, the, the guy was 29 years in jail and they wanted to incinerate. Um, but but Signing Pat have a double action because on one hand, they kill a lot of people and they give arguments for the right wing to repress the labor movement and the people's movement. But then when Abimael Guzman was in prison, he completely changed his line. And then he said, I want to support an amnesty for everybody, even for Fujimori and Montesinos and all the torturers and paramilitaries. We are not going to fight against corruption because we want an amnesty for everybody. So he changed completely political line. Now he's dying, not as a man that was like a Che Guevara fighting for his ideas, but as a man that asked his supporters uh, to be in favor of the freedom of all the former dictators in Peru. They killed 80,000 people, it's thought. Uh, who did they kill, Isaac? Well, the, the official version is around 70,000 people, half of them killed by Shining Path, and the other half for other forces, especially by the official forces. But um, sometimes some of the killings that have been attributed to Shining Path was not made by them, you know? But there's a lot of people killed, you know? A lot, you know? I think that Colombia have more, but Colombia have more than one million, but 70,000 people in Peru, half of them, made by Shining Path is too much, you know? 
But the, the worst crime for me that committed Shiny Pat was not only the crimes, which are terrible, but was that they opened the door for a, for a neoliberal, neoliberal and corrupt dictatorship. Because, you know, before Shiny Pat, nobody was going to privatize, nobody wanted to implement a Thatcherized kind of uh, neoliberal policies. Peru had a, no, so, no, was no so socially polarized. But when they captured Abimel Guzman, they privatized absolutely everything. And Peru have, is more expensive in terms of water, electricity, and gas than Britain. And the wages in Peru are how much? Less than 200 euros per month, less than 180 pounds per month. So uh, I think that the worst that Shining Path created was they made the possibility that Fujimori took power make a neoliberal regime we are, that has lasted three decades in Peru. And they used uh, Shining Path as an excuse to repress uh, the movement. And now we had elections in Peru. And for the first time in 200 years, because Peru is independent on the 28th of July, 1821, Peru elected a left-wing president, who is a poor guy, a teacher. His name is Pedro Castillo. And it was the most polarized election you can ever imagine, George, because the, the Fujimori said, Castillo is a terrorist, he's an impact, he's a communist. I have never seen an election so much polarized with so much slanders in my entire life in any country. But Castillo won by, by a little margin. But now the opposition made by Fujimori is trying to push him to adopt a hard line against everybody that's, that uh, is, uh, everybody. And they, they want that Castillo uh, cremate the body of, of Guzman and threw away its body into the water. No? Do they have any remaining uh, base? Is there still any armed remnants uh, that uh, didn't listen to the self-serving pleas of Guzman to, uh, to end their struggle? Uh, or is armed struggle in Peru over for good? I think that the armed struggle in Peru is over for a long time. There is only a small remnant in, in the jungles, which is about some tens of members, which is a split, split group from Shining Path, that they say that Abimel Guzman is a terrorist or was a, is a terrorist, a genocider, and that they don't attack civilians. They only attack army officers. But it's so small, that group, so small that they don't have a press, they don't have a political positions, they are only defending the production of coca leaves and the trade. But most of the political party of Abimel Guzman said, we don't want armed struggle, we want uh, an amnesty for everybody, even for Fujimori, and Montesino Fujimori was a terrible dictator. He's the only former president in the Americas that has been extradited from another country to put in our country, and is served in jail, perhaps until he dies. So, Shiny Pat is in favor of an amnesty for him, for Montesino, who was the intelligence, who was like the Peruvian Rasputin, who organized the killings of people, of young people. They are in favor of amnesty for every paramilitar and every corrupt politician. So it's a very exchange political line. So the supporters of Abimel Guzman are very, very few in Peru. And I think that the right wing is trying to inflame the spectrum of Shiny Pat because the idea of them is the following. If we create a monster, which is terrorism, 
we can attack more the labor rights, the, the, the ecological rights, and we can open the country for, for more multinationals, and we can escape corruption scandals, you know, because most of them are extremely corrupt. And what, what the origin of the, the political, uh, what's the ontology of, of, of the Shining Path? They called themselves Maoists. Uh, this was quite unusual in the 1980s, and China had long left behind uh, much of Maoism. Uh, how authentic was this Maoism? Well, you have to understand one thing. Peru is the most oriental Western country. We have more than one million Chinese and Japanese that, that arrived in Peru as replacement of black slaves. No? Oh, wow, I didn't and, know that. Yeah. So, yes, and we have a Chinese daily paper, a Japanese daily paper, a Chinese, a Chi our Chinatown is perhaps as big as the London one. So, and we, we have a lot of Chinese words, Chinese food, and so on. So, so First of all, and the second thing is that Peru was the center of the Maoist movement in the Americas in the 70s. We have like more than 10 or perhaps 20 Maoist parties. So what happened when when China is, uh, break with the with the wife of the wife of Mao Zedong and the, the so-called Gang of Four, most of the Maoist parties in Peru supported Beijing. Some of them supported Albania. But there was one group that said, we support uh, Mao's wife, and we are against Deng Xiaoping. So, so they were a genuine Maoist group, but they, they were against the, the change of line in Beijing, and they started to attack the Cuban, the Chinese, and the Soviet embassy, because for them, all of them become social imperialists, revisionists, and they, they make that incredible, uh, silly people's war because when the Communist Party of China started its war in 27, it's because after they were um, smashed by the Kuomintang and a military dictatorship. So they went into the, uh, the mountains as a way to defend themselves. But they were a mass party. In the case of Shani Pat, they were against the trade unions, all the rest of the left. And they entered in armed struggle just the very same day of 17 of May 1980 of the first election after the military dictatorship. And they, instead of creating a liberated area in Peru, like in China, Mao, they didn't have like that. They create terror, terror, terror everywhere. So they tried to build, uh, to build its party through terror against unions, against peasant organizations. And at the end, this movement was not viable and they, it were destroyed. And the only thing that they helped to create was a right-wing, neoliberal, anti-terrorist dictatorship. No? The, the, only the only dictatorship in, in, in the Americas after the opening of the democratic elections. Fascinating. Isaac Biggio, thank you for that tour of uh, Peru's political history. The uh, poll is not showing any changes. Most people think that the French will retaliate by opening the refugee flow uh, of people seeking to escape the hellhole of France and arrive in England on the uh, south coast. Uh, hardly any of you think they'll shut off the wine. Uh, and only a quarter of you think that France will leave NATO. A little bit surprising uh, to me.
that. I think there's a very real possibility uh, that they will. Now, I don't know about you, but I've spent uh, decades paying money uh, to somebody called McAfee. Uh, I actually never knew that it was a person, just a, a faceless corporation that I was paying money to, to protect my computer. So far, so good, but not for Mr. McAfee, for he was indeed a real person. McAfee, John McAfee, as we would call him in uh, this country, McAfee, as he's known in the United States, was, well, take your pick. Like Jeffrey Epstein, he may have genuinely committed suicide. Or like Jeffrey Epstein, the suicide may have come as a big surprise to him. One man uh, has studied this matter in very great detail. He is the author and ghostwriter Mark Eglinton, and he joins us now. A ghostwriter, huh, Mark? I, I think you should write McAfee's uh, uh, posthumous uh, memoirs. Tell us why you're interested and why we should be. Well, let, let me explain and tell you that this book actually is his memoirs. Uh, John contacted me in 2019 while he was on the run and said, I want you to ghostwrite my autobiography. And that's what we agreed to do. However, uh, given how complex his situation was, that situation changed uh, halfway through the process when he wanted cryptocurrency from a publisher, didn't have an address to contact with, et cetera, et cetera. So he ended up uh, pulling out of the project, leaving me with it. And this book that is coming out towards the end of the year is conversations between he and I, uh, which are essentially his life story. So, I mean, when you say that uh, I, I should ghostwrite his his memoirs, I more or less have, uh, because almost all the words are his. So that, that's where we are. Uh, why was he of interest to you? Uh, I mean, John, I don't know how, how much uh, the listeners know about John. John lived the most incredible life uh, in every sense. I mean, the, the, the pre-McAfee years, before he even... I mean, the company he founded, which you referred to earlier, was founded by accident. He had no, no aspirations whatsoever to be a corporate figure. He was somebody who enjoyed living, and earning money was, was simply a means to continue living. And when he, when he walked away from McAfee Associates in 1992, he didn't sell it. People think that he sold out. He didn't. He just walked away. Uh, but also what happened was he benefited greatly from the flotation of the company on the, the stock exchange at that time. So he had unlimited money. And from that point onward, he did basically what he wanted in life, built houses, traveled to foreign countries, uh, literally got bounced around by the chaos of the world, uh, which is easy to do, granted, if you have upwards of $100 million. But that's the kind of life he lived. And he was just fascinating. And... Uh, I just thought I couldn't believe he'd never written an autobiography. Uh, and the fact that he was on the run at the time when he was contacting me made it even more appealing. I just couldn't believe that there was a situation where I could write a book with a guy who was on the run. And that's what we did. So, uh, yeah, that brings us to, to, to now. And sadly, John is not, is, won't be here to read this book when it comes out later this year. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing uh, for the sales or not. Uh, it's certainly a new layer of mystery, isn't it? He was, yeah, uh, he was a rum character, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, anyone who knows anything about John knows he went to Belize. Uh, they will know that he ran from Belize. 
when he was being framed by the Belizean government while also being accused of a murder. Uh, a murder, I firmly believe, based on all the conversations I had with him, he did not commit. Uh, nevertheless, he faked a heart attack in Guatemala. He's faked a stroke elsewhere while on the run. This is a guy whose life force, even at the age of 74, which he was when I was talking to him, was undiminished. So, you know, people have asked me numerous times in the aftermath of his sad death, do I think that John committed suicide? And, you know, I'll never have the answer to that, the definitive answer. What I will, what I will say is that there was nothing in any of the conversations I ever had with him which suggested that he didn't want to keep living. You know, that's all I can say. All, all of his moves that he's made over the last three or four years have been designed to keep living. Uh, so that, that's all I can say about that part of it. Well, can you say why there might be any doubt that he committed suicide? Yeah, I mean, 100%. He, I mean, it's well known. He made it well known that he, he was being pursued by the CIA. He, he firmly believed that. Uh, he believed that... I mean, his stance on taxation in the U.S. was one whereby he hadn't filed tax returns. Not only that, there, I mean, there's plenty of people who don't file tax returns, but he was going out on a public stage discussing cryptocurrency. Now, cryptocurrency, as some people might think, is a, is a means of avoiding paying tax. He was going around on a yacht telling people, I haven't filed tax returns and here's how you don't have to either. And he believes that he became a problem to the U.S. government to the extent that somebody might try and collect him. And he told me that on a number of occasions. And in fact, some of the conversations in the, in, in the book are about his knowledge of the, the, the intricacies of how the CIA works. Because this is a man who supplied the CIA in his early days of McAfee Associates. He, he knew how that, that operation worked. And where did he die, commit suicide, or was killed? In a prison in Barcelona. How, how was he, why was he in a prison in Barcelona? Well, he was on the run when I was talking to, for the, uh, talking to him for the book that we did together. Uh, and what I didn't know at the time was that he was on the run in Spain. And at some point during 2020, he boarded a flight in Barcelona, Barcelona airport on a UK passport. He was a dual UK and US citizen and was apprehended by people presumably contracted by the US uh, authorities on a flight to Istanbul. And from there, he was uh, imprisoned in Barcelona pending uh, deportation to the US. And he made uh, some kind of uh, prediction, like others, uh, that he, yeah. he, 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 would, he would be suicided by the authorities, didn't he? Yeah, the, the, the whacked theory uh, is one that he, he put out there uh, a year or so, year and a half before his, his death, uh, to the extent he got a tattoo with whacked on his arm and posted on Twitter that if he is ever whacked, that he didn't do it, it would be he was comparing his situation to, to Epstein and was indeed suggesting that Epstein didn't uh, commit suicide. So, yeah, he did kind of predict it. But this was the kind of thing John did. John was uh, somebody who liked manipulating uh, the pub his public persona. He enjoyed doing that. It could easily be a red herring. Yeah. Was there an investigation into his death? Was there a proper uh, coroner's inquiry or the Catalan equivalent? <laughs> well, things have been slow in Spain. He died in June the twenty on June the twenty third. There was an initial autopsy that ruled suicide, which was disputed by his wife, Janice, who's in Spain now. Uh, there's been various legal to and fro up to the point when the Spanish authorities, I think Spain shuts down in August, essentially for a holiday. 
And my understanding is that there is more uh, to come from this in September, uh, later on this month, in fact, when Spain opens up again. But it's, it's certainly not resolved. Uh, I wouldn't like to say that this is resolved at this point. It's still very much open. And how much of his $100 million did he get through and how much uh, does Janice stand to inherit? He, he was broke. I said this to another uh, source when, uh, when I was asked after his death. I firmly believe John had no money when he died. Uh, and people say, oh, well, how can you have $100 million? And that was conservative, that number. But this is a guy, and as I said to you earlier, he enjoyed just living. And in the book, he talks about building houses in Ecuador, spending $25 million on a house that he never set foot in. He built half a dozen houses of this kind all over the U.S., in Hawaii, in Belize, never bothered about even going to any of them or some of them. Uh, so this wasn't somebody who was bothered about spending money. And I believe that by the time he was uh, imprisoned, he was basically bankrupt. And does his wife uh, think he was whacked? She doesn't believe he committed suicide. Uh, and, I, I, you know, for the same reasons I don't. I mean, he was, he was eternally positive. Uh, her, her last communication with him was earlier that day where he said, you know, I love you, I'll talk to you tomorrow type of thing. There was no suggestion that uh, this was on his mind. And John's somebody who would be pretty honest about that kind of thing. I'm pretty sure that if he had this kind of thing on his mind, he wouldn't mind saying so, and he didn't. Was he alone in his cell when he passed away? He was. Uh, that, that part of it's a bit confusing. There was a cellmate who was uh, with John during the time in prison. The cellmate was not there at the time of his death. That part of it is a bit cloudy, as is the, the aspect of the CCTV footage from the cell at the time. That, that's something that's still to come out. So tell us about the book. Uh, what's it called? Where can we get it and when? The book is called No Domain, The John McAfee Tapes. And basically, this is John McAfee and I sitting down for over six months and me talking about his life to him and him talking back. And John was a myth in the public uh, eye, even a meme. But the John McAfee that I spoke to was the actual person. Uh, I'm convinced that I got... Uh, uh, a vision of him through these conversations nobody's ever seen before. And it's just fascinating. His insight into human nature, into cryptocurrency, into internet security, into privacy, uh, the workings of government is just fascinating. And it will be out later this year. The publication date is to be confirmed because obviously when he passed, we tried to move that date up, which we're still trying to do. But it will be uh, later this year, I'm hoping November, and it will be available at all good bookstores, uh, Amazon, all the usual bookstores. And I can't wait for people to read it. You may have a big seller on your hands. Thank you very much, Mark Eglinton, author uh, of and ghostwriter of No Domain, uh, the McAfee tapes. Uh, now, we're snowed under with calls tonight, so I'm going to cut you short and go to Richard in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, George. Absolutely fantastic show again. I'm listening intently to a lot of this. Thank this you. Keir Starmer thing that's reared uh, its head over the last couple of years, I don't think he was put in there as uh, somebody for the future of the party. I just have an opinion that the Blairites and the world domination uh, and the global people and the EU and all this about Scotland and separating from, from Great Britain is the biggest thing that has happened to us in an awful long time. Mm -hmm. I'd love your opinion on it. 
if they're going to... Keir Starmer will never be the Prime Minister of England. Never, never. And I, I think, yeah, I think he knows that. And I've got a good bet with somebody um, to give to charity if he ever did. And I know in my own heart, George, I was a socialist, brought up a socialist. My father was a coal miner. And only once in my lifetime did I ever vote for anything other than that. And that was to get us out of the EU. And I was ashamed to do that. But I felt that was the only way forward that we could go because of Mrs. May's intransigence and wanting to stay in and trying to con the country. Uh, into into doing that, and I'm I'm only speaking facts as they evolved over the last you know three or four years, and I believe that the globalists are now trying to split Scotland from the EU to get us back into the EU, which I think will be an impossibility. And I only wish that people like yourself uh, and people like Farage and one or two other people had been able to lead us forward. And I remember your show once going back a few years, and you were talking to Farage, and you were saying, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get back into Parliament? Having said all that, what happened was, I think he got ill or he got sick of the whole thing, having fought a lone battle for many, many years, uh, along with just a few people who had, had um, what can I say, George, the intro into the the... the uh, the media to get any results. He fought the battle with everyone else who was interested in getting out, uh, and he's done for me a great job. Well, no he's doubt, there's uh, to... no doubt he's entered history as the man most responsible uh, for Britain finally being able to leave the European Union. I don't agree with him uh, about much else other than that, but that is a pretty big thing. Richard, thanks for your kind words. Victor is in Alabama. Must go there. Go ahead, Victor. Hi, George. Um, Hi. I just wanted to ask you for some advice. So I've recently um, infiltrated a few national socialist organizations. Um, and the thing that surprised me was that there is an actual backlog of people joining um, it's throughout the West. And the fact that it's growing so rapidly recently. Really? What What can someone like me do who's kind of already inside of it to fight back against it? Uh, well, uh, you could uh, show people where it all ended in Auschwitz, uh, in the incineration and gas uh, gassing of uh, tiny infants and... Uh, young women and old women and young men and boys and old men. You could show them how it all brought Germany to uh, absolute ruin and the death and destruction spread throughout the world. That's what I uh, do uh, when confronted with anyone who is even remotely uh, leaning in, in that direction. Uh, but equally... We have to indict uh, the uh, political class uh, in Western countries, including yours and mine, uh, which have so entirely failed the people uh, that uh, some individuals end up in these dead ends of extremism and fanaticism. They end up uh, sociopathic. They end up even psychopathic. Uh, they've been driven 
quite literally mad in many cases by the absolute failure of the Tweedledee, Tweedledum uh, political class, two cheeks of the same ass uh, political class. Uh, that's uh, what we also need to do. Last word to you, Victor. So, yeah, that's, I've tried to show some of them that, and they're just in constant denial because they say, they call it opening up their eyes, and I keep telling people, you're opening up your eyes to a failed ideology at the end of the day, and they don't want to admit the truth. Mm. Well, uh, um, I'm, you're a very courageous man to be doing what you're doing, uh, but fascism, Nazism, uh, is the road to hell, it's the road to perdition. Uh, it always has been and it has not changed. It feeds upon hate against uh, other individuals uh, for characteristics uh, over which they had no choice. It seeks to defend, ultimately, a political and economic system uh, which has beggared uh, most of the world and which is the fundamental ailment uh, of society. Thank you very much uh, for that call. Les Calderwood says, the French have always been fabulous winners, but really atrocious losers. In this case, they haven't dished out enough cake. The EU have not spent on defence, and I don't blame the Australians desiring the latest state-of-the-art submarines. Although Les doesn't add why Australia in particular would need the latest state-of-the-art submarines. Don in Sunderland, or Don Sunderland, I should say, says they've already opened the refugee flow and stemming the tide of wine will hurt them more so. So I guess leave NATO is the only option left. I just can't see them doing it without a joint EU military alternative in place. My guess is they'll settle for recalling their ambassadors. Brilliant call, and I'm going to leave it at that. Don't be a stranger. We need your wisdom here in the uh, Open University of the Airwaves. Let's hear from Imran in Washington, D.C. on Bin Laden. Go ahead, Imran. Hello. Uh, how are you, George? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thanks for the call. Go ahead. Uh, I came. I, I called to you on this uh, on this platform to actually challenge your views on Bin Laden because um, Go ahead. That, 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 that I've, I've actually been waiting for this moment because I believe personally that Bin Laden is being portrayed in a very cartoonish manner. Okay. Go ahead. And 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 the thing is that you know like. The, 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 the common narrative is that bin Laden was a, was a mindless mass murderer. I don't see him that way. I actually see him as, as, um, as a freedom fighter. I mean, I'm not an Islamist, but, uh, but I actually came here on this, on this platform to actually shed a different, uh, different light on his character and, and to actually defend his legacy. Because, You're not uh, an Islamist, but really you want to defend bin Laden's legacy. Right. Go on. I mean, I don't see him as a, as a terrorist. I see him uh, more as a, as, a, as the reincarnation what of the Mahadeen himself. What were the attacks on the uh, U.S. embassy uh, in Nairobi uh, uh, and uh, elsewhere in uh, East Africa? What were these, if not terrorist uh, attacks? They killed, slaughtered uh, huge numbers of black African people standing outside the embassies. 
If that's not terrorism, what is? Well, I mean, he, he had his reasons. He, had his, he, he clearly had his reasons. And well, he, no, and I'm he, not and asking he, about reasons. reasons. I'm asking you to defend uh, the slaughter of hundreds of people in Tanzania and in Kenya, black Africans who were slaughtered for no other reason than that they happened to be in the vicinity of the American embassy. I'm asking you, if that's not terrorism, what is terrorism? Well, well, that was terrorism, but 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 his but his but but his but his uh, his his real aim was, was not those black Africans. His real aim was 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 hit, hitting the you know the superpower where it where, where it hurt what, the most. What matter was not what his aim was, but what he did, and not once but twice, in adjoining countries. Yeah, but but, 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 let, but let's be honest. The number of people killed by by Bin Laden is ridiculous compared to the number of people killed, you know, by the other side. I mean, the That's other side. That's just what aboutery. That's just what aboutery. I'm you're on here to defend Bin Laden's legacy. I'm asking you to defend it, not by saying that somebody else committed even more crimes than him. You're here to defend your thesis that Bin Laden was not a terrorist. Yeah, because, because he didn't kill people for no reason. I mean, he, he had... He, he killed had a, all he had those Africans reason. for no reason. His supporters, they, killed, his supporters killed 55 people on London buses and on the underground in his name. They were killed for no reason. Yeah, because because he wanted he, 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 his his idea was that that that, that if, if you're going to if you're going to kill if you're going to kill us you know for, for, if you're going to kill one of us you know our, our people you know for you know with, without any distinction then it, his his approach was was like an eye for an eye approach. Oh yes, uh, if now, I could put it to you this way, uh, uh, there is no Islamic justification for that, of course, Imran. You may not be an Islamist, as you say. Uh, but I'm inferring that you are a Muslim. It is a sin in Islam to kill innocent people for the crimes of guilty people, isn't it? Of course it is, but 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 but, but, but as as I said, this is this is this is this was this is war. You know, I mean, people. No, people, it wasn't. I mean, no, is, no, no. The, the the Quran very clear about what you're allowed to do in war. And one of the things you are definitively not allowed to do is kill innocent people for the crimes of guilty people. It's forbidden. Are you a Muslim, yes, Imran? Uh, well, I, I'm actually I'm actually a deist. I'm a, I'm 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 an ex-Sunni Muslim. Okay, so you as an ex-Sunni Muslim. You're well familiar uh, with the uh, Quranic incantation uh, that to kill an innocent soul is as to kill the whole of humanity. You must remember that from your days as an ex-Sunni Muslim, mustn't you? 
Of course I do. I, 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 I absolutely remember it, but, but you have to put it into context. No, but the, the, you're saying it's war. It's not war to kill women on a London bus because you hate what Tony Blair has done. That's not war. That is actually specifically, specifically excluded in your former religion. Yes, it is. You're not even allowed to destroy trees belonging to your enemies in war in Islam. How come you don't know that? I know that, but, 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 but what I'm trying to do is, is that I'm trying to shed a different light on his character. I'm, like, I mean, he's, he's cartoonishly portrayed, you know, almost in the, in, 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 in the West, you know. So I'm trying to, you know, shed a different well, light on his character. Uh, there, there's it. a word, cartoonish. Uh, the mass murder of workers, secretaries, clerks, at the Charlie Hebdo office in Paris. Was that terrorism or not? Obviously, that was, that, that, that was terrorism. And was it carried out by followers of bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Yes or no? It was carried out by, by bin Laden and, and Al Qaeda, but 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 but, but the, like the, the the point of my discussion is that like I'm explaining the, the, the his motives. I'm explaining as to why he did what he did. You're really not explaining, explaining it very the, well, uh, Imran. I'm sorry to tell you, you haven't explained why it's war to kill black African cigarette sellers outside the American embassy in Dar es Salaam or in Nairobi. You haven't explained why it's war to kill a young woman on her way to work on a London bus. You haven't explained why it is war uh, to murder the secretary as she came out for her lunch from the Charlie Hebdo office. You haven't explained any of that. Well, if you if, if if you allow me to, I'll actually I'll actually try to you know try to do my best you know to like. Well, give your a best isn't good this, enough. So I I suggest to you that you retreat now, that you reflect on what you've said, that you reflect on the weakness of your arguments, that you think, and that you call me back on another occasion, hopefully to withdraw the things that you have said. Nikolai is in Denmark. Let's hear from Nikolai. Yes, hello, George. How hello. are you? I'm very well, sir. Thank you. Well, George, uh, let me commend you for a very good show and uh, for conveying a message that the missing media usually doesn't. So thank you. Uh, I have no idea if I'm alone from Denmark or somebody else is watching from Denmark, but in Scandinavia, uh, we have also participated, or at least our countries have participated, you know, under the U.S. umbrella, Afghanistan, all that and so on. Uh, not a good story. No. That, let's, let's, let's put that aside. Uh, George Galloway, your hat, your, uh, <laughs> your eyepieces, your beard, your suit, arms around the labs. It's an icon for free speech. Make a trade, trademark of that. 
How very, very kind of you. <laughs> Having said that, I have a, I have a question to you. Uh, say, um, while Macron is eating a croissant with cheese and having a glass of wine, weeping over the U.S. and the Australian uh, deal, you know, uh, zooming out, it's all about U.S. and China, right? It I is. Say, uh, uh, we're going to have to continue this conversation, Nicola. I, I like you. Uh, you're not alone in Denmark. We have many viewers and listeners in Denmark, many correspondents from Denmark, too. Uh, but we've run out of time in the second hour, and we've got to go to the news. But your description of Macron eating his croissant with cheese, drinking his glass of wine, his tears dropping into that wine is something that is iconic for me. Downloads of the podcast, huge numbers, are downloading this week's highlights in the UK and in the US, but also in countries like Japan, India, Denmark, Saudi Arabia, you probably get executed for that, Korea, Switzerland, the UAE, and Hong Kong in China. Thank you for all the great reviews you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and including this one. In British politics, Mr. Galloway stands as the last bastion of sense. Like a fine wine, he gets better with age. I have been a fan of his since 2002. I would recommend anyone to listen to him. The best podcast around. Thank you very much indeed. That was a touching testimony. Thank you so much. If you do listen, give a five-star review. Why don't you? You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.